made the peaceful coexistence of these two large populations in the South unlikely in his judgment. More likely, he thought, were convulsions which will probably never end, but in the extermination of one or the other race. James Madison likewise referred to the repugnance of the whites to blacks, which he saw as founded on prejudices, themselves founded on physical distinctions, which are not likely soon, if ever, to be eradicated. Therefore, like many other opponents of slavery in their day, Jefferson and Madison saw emancipation as something that needed to be combined with expatriation in order to solve the problem of slavery without creating a bigger problem of a race war. The race war and bloodbath that erupted with the emancipation of blacks in Santo Domingo, today's Haiti, cast a long shadow over the South, and apprehensions were increased when Nat Turner's uprising in 1831 left a trail of death in Virginia before it was suppressed by lethal force. Many Americans of that era who saw slavery as evil saw a race war as a greater evil. Those who took this view had the most difficult moral choices to make and were most inclined to want to grope toward some plan that would ease slavery out of existence without consuming blacks and whites alike in mutually annihilating strife. The founders and early leaders of the American Republic, including Southerners like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, saw slavery as an evil that could be tolerated only in fear of greater evils, and even then, not tolerated indefinitely. Among prominent Southerners of a later era, Robert E. Lee likewise declared in 1856 that he regarded slavery as an evil that he wished to see somehow gradually ended. Too often, the reductionism of a later age has turned all such hesitation about immediate emancipation into either rationalizations for continued economic exploitation or sheer hypocrisy. These charges need to be examined carefully, rather than being accepted or rejected a priori. Few who actually lived in antebellum America thought that slavery could be ended in the South by simple fiat, even though it was abolished that way without incident in most northern states. The situation was radically different in the two parts of the country. Slaves were only a relatively minor part of the northern population, and plantation slavery was virtually unknown, partly because the climate and soil did not lend themselves to the kinds of crops that could be grown efficiently on cotton plantations in the South or on sugar plantations in the Caribbean. Therefore, in the North, the question of abolishing slavery as an institution did not raise serious questions about what to do with the people who had been enslaved. Some affluent whites in the North lost their black household servants or rehired them as employees or sold them to the South where slavery was still prevalent. But the relatively small numbers of people involved meant that it was not a major problem for the North in any case. Southerners faced a very different situation, with momentous economic and social implications. Blacks were a much higher percentage of the total Southern population than in the Northern states, and in some places were an absolute majority. From the first census of 1790 to the last census before the Civil War in 1860, Slaves were approximately one-third of the total Southern population. As of 1860, slaves were more than 40% of the population of Alabama, Florida, Georgia, and Louisiana, and more than half the population of Mississippi and South Carolina, freeing in their midst millions of people of an alien race and unknown disposition, and with no history in either Africa or America that would prepare them to be citizens of a society such as the United States, was not an experiment that many were willing to risk in these states, 
not when it could mean risking their lives. Only those on opposite ends of a spectrum of opinion found the issue of slavery easy. Those like Senator John C. Calhoun of South Carolina, who wished to keep blacks enslaved indefinitely, and those like Massachusetts' William Lloyd Garrison, who advocated immediate emancipation of blacks with the full rights of citizenship. Ironically, both men reasoned on the basis of abstract principles, legalistic principles in the case of Calhoun, and moralistic principles in the case of Garrison. In both cases, the relentless march of their syllogisms left the painful human realities and dilemmas fading into the dim background. For the majority of Americans in between, neither option was acceptable, nor was any other option able to command the general consensus. The kind of strange cross-currents this situation generated were perhaps epitomized by the career of Congressman John Randolph of Virginia, a prominent and bitter opponent of the abolitionists, who nevertheless hated slavery. Slavery was to him a cancer, but one which must not be tampered with by quacks who never saw the disease or the patient, for this could end in the race war that he too feared, threatening the life's blood of the little ones which are lying in their cradles in happy ignorance of what is passing around them, and not the white ones only, for shall not we too kill? Fears of a race war were not confined to Southerners, however, or even to Americans. Alexis de Tocqueville saw a race war in the South as a very real possibility in the wake of mass emancipation and one of many painful prospects created by the institution of slavery, especially a slavery in which the freed people and their descendants would be physically distinct and could not readily vanish by assimilation into the larger society, as in some earlier times and in other parts of the world. Moreover, slavery was a very poor preparation for freedom for blacks, economically, socially, or otherwise. Free blacks were already very disproportionately represented in prison populations, creating fears of what would happen if the much larger slave population were suddenly freed. Even a northern opponent of slavery like Frederick Law Olmsted, having encountered and been appalled by slave field hands during his travels through the South, feared that their presence in large numbers must be considered a dangerous circumstance to a civilized people. He urged charitable efforts toward blacks after they were freed, lest desperate want make them dangerous to those around them. But he too saw the freeing of millions of people unprepared for freedom as creating a serious danger to the society as a whole. Nor was Olmsted alone. Abolitionists were hated in the North as well as the South. William Lloyd Garrison narrowly escaped being lynched by a mob in Boston, even though there were no slaveholders in Massachusetts. And another abolitionist leader was killed by a mob in Illinois. Abolitionists were also targets of mobs in New York and Philadelphia, and anti-abolitionist rallies were held in many northern communities. None of this was based on any economic interest in the ownership of slaves in states where such ownership had been outlawed decades earlier. But, just as southerners resented dangers to themselves created by distant abolitionists, so northerners resented dangers to the Union with the prospect of a bloody civil war. Even people who were openly opposed to slavery were often also opposed to the abolitionists. A leading historian of the Civil War era has called it a moot question whether even such leaders of the fight against slavery as Charles Sumner or Thaddeus Stevens could be called abolitionists in the sense in which the term was used at the time. Quakers, who had spearheaded the anti-slavery movement on both sides of the Atlantic, nevertheless distanced themselves from the abolitionist movement exemplified by Garrison. Abraham Lincoln, 
likewise, was never an abolitionist in the sense in which that word was used at the time, even though he publicly argued for an end to slavery for decades before he was in a position to put an end to it himself. When he first ran for president in 1860, abolitionists refused to support him, saying that the outcome of this election would make no difference whether success be to the Democrats or the Republicans. Accordingly, the abolitionists ran their own candidate for president, even though he had no realistic chance of being elected, and in fact split the anti-slavery vote, so that Lincoln was elected with only a plurality. Even after Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, the abolitionist movement split on whether to support him for re-election. Some abolitionists even criticized Frederick Douglass for purchasing his legal freedom rather than continue to be in danger as a fugitive slave because paying compensation for one's freedom was taken as a legitimization of slavery. It was the abolitionists' doctrinaire stances and heedless disregard of consequences, both of their policy and their rhetoric, which marginalized them, even in the North and even among those who were seeking to find ways to phase out the institution of slavery so as to free those being held in bondage without unleashing a war between the states or a war between the races. Garrison could say the question of expedience has nothing to do with that of right, which is true in the abstract, but irrelevant in a world where consequences matter. Too often, the abolitionists were intolerant of those seeking the same goal of ending slavery when those others, including Lincoln, proceeded in ways that took account of the inescapable constraints of the times, instead of being oblivious to context and constraints. While the dilemmas created by slavery were particularly acute in the United States, similar considerations applied in some other Western societies. In 18th century Britain, Edmund Burke recognized the very same dilemmas for British colonies, such as those in the West Indies, and sought to devise ways around them. An opponent of the slave trade long before Parliament had been brought to that point by popular pressures, Burke put the problem, as he put so many other problems, in the context of the inherent constraints of circumstances. While seeing slavery as an incurable evil, Burke was concerned with what would happen to the slaves themselves after they were freed, as well as the implications of their freedom for the society around them. The minds of men being crippled by slavery, Burke said, we must precede the donation of freedom by developing in the enslaved people the capacity to function as responsible members of a free society. Therefore, he proposed the civilization and gradual manumission of Negroes in the two hemispheres. Later, he proposed to give property to the Negroes when they should become free. But nowhere did Burke view this as an abstract question without considering the social context and the consequences and dangers of that context. He rejected the idea that one could simply free the slaves by fiat as a matter of abstract principle, since he abhorred abstract principles on political issues in general. Thomas Jefferson likewise regarded emancipation, all by itself, as being more like abandonment than liberation for people whose habits have been formed in slavery. When Edmund Burke set forth his particular proposal to a colleague, he warned, Its whole value, if it has any, is the coherence and mutual dependency of parts in the scheme. Separately, they can be of little or no use. Burke's approach to slavery, as to other issues, was in terms of the actual context and the constraints implied by that context, not abstract principles. As he said on another issue, I do not enter into these metaphysical distinctions. I hate the very sound of them. In America, John Randolph of Roanoke took a similar position. I am not going to discuss the abstract question of liberty 
or slavery or any other abstract question. Today, slavery is too often discussed as an abstract question with an easy answer, leading to sweeping condemnations of those who did not reach that easy answer in their own time. In 19th century America especially, there was no alternative that was not traumatic, including both the continuation of slavery and the ending of it in the manner in which it was in fact ended by the Civil War, at a cost of one life for every six slaves freed. Many problems can be made simple, but only by leaving out the complications which those in the midst of these problems cannot so easily escape with a turn of a phrase as those who look back on them in later centuries can. Even at the individual level, it was not always legally possible for a slave owner to simply set a slave free, for authorities had to approve in many states. When a motion was introduced into the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1769 to allow slave owners to free their slaves unilaterally, a motion seconded by Thomas Jefferson, there was anger at such a suggestion, and the motion was roundly defeated. An unlimited power to release slaves into the larger society was considered too dangerous to leave in private hands. Many who have dismissed the anti-slavery words of the founders of the American Republic as just rhetoric have not bothered to check the facts of history. Washington, Jefferson, and other founders did not just talk. They acted. Even when they acted within the political and legal constraints of their times, they acted repeatedly, sometimes winning and sometimes losing. One of the early battles that was lost was Jefferson's first draft of the Declaration of Independence, which criticized King George III for having enslaved Africans and for overriding colonial Virginia's attempt to ban slavery. The Continental Congress removed that phrase under pressure from representatives from the South. When Jefferson drafted a state constitution for Virginia in 1776, his draft included a clause prohibiting any more importation of slaves and, in 1783, Jefferson included in a new draft of a Virginia Constitution a proposal for gradual emancipation of slaves. He was defeated in both these efforts. On the national scene, Jefferson returned to the battle once again in 1784, proposing a law declaring slavery illegal in all western territories of the country as it existed at that time. Such a ban would have kept slavery out of Alabama and Mississippi. The bill lost by one vote that of a legislator too sick to come and vote. Afterwards, Jefferson said that the fate of millions unborn was hanging on the tongue of one man, and heaven was silent in that awful moment. Three years later, however, Congress compromised by passing the Northwest Ordinance, making slavery illegal in the Upper Western Territories, while allowing it in the Lower Western Territories. Congress was later authorized to ban the African slave trade, and Jefferson, now president, urged that they use that authority to stop Americans from all further participation in those violations of human rights which has been so long continued on the unoffending inhabitants of Africa. Congress followed his urging. As a historian summarized the actions of these early leaders, if the founding fathers had done none of this, if slavery had continued in the North and expanded into the Northwest, if millions of Africans had been imported to strengthen slavery in the Deep South, to consolidate it in New York and Illinois, to spread it to Kansas, and to keep it in the border south. If no free black population had developed in Delaware and Maryland, if no apology for slavery had left Southerners on shaky moral grounds, if, in short, Jefferson and his contemporaries had lifted nary a finger, everything would have been different. In short, 
The ideology of the American Revolution was not just words. Those ideas were not wholly without effect, even in the South. During the years immediately following creation of the United States, for a number of Southern states eased legal restrictions on private manumissions during that era, and many blacks were freed voluntarily. As a leading historian of slavery in the United States noted, manumissions were in fact so common in the deeds and wills of the men of 76 that the number of colored freemen in the South exceeded 35,000 in 1790 and was nearly doubled in each of the next two decades. Despite growing apprehensions in the South following the bloodbaths in Santo Domingo, even as late as 1832, the Virginia legislature considered a bill to abolish slavery, though it was defeated by a vote of just 73 to 58. Nevertheless, resistance to general emancipation was far stronger in the South than in the North. Moreover, that resistance grew more intransigent after the Nat Turner Rebellion in 1831 and the rise of militant abolitionism in the North exemplified by the founding of William Lloyd Garrison's fiery newspaper, The Liberator, that same year. Even the right of private manumission began to be severely restricted after the rise of the Northern Abolitionist Movement. The free black population, which had been growing faster than the slave population in the decades of large-scale private manumissions immediately following the American Revolution, now grew much more slowly than the slave population in the decades leading up to the Civil War. Southerners with a variety of views on the slavery issue were bitter against Northern abolitionists who were seen as imposing dangers on the South that the distant abolitionists themselves would never have to face. Out of this bitterness came a sectionalism and intolerance in the South that led, especially from the 1830s on, to suppression of criticisms of slavery in the region, including restrictions on academic freedom and freedom of the press, state censorship of the U.S. mails, and a campaign to stop sending Southern young men to Northern colleges. Ultimately, such fears, bitterness, and sectionalism led to secession and the ensuing Civil War. Before things reached that point, however, there were many efforts, both individual and collective, in early 19th century America to find some way out of the dilemma in which many felt themselves trapped by decisions made before they were born. Indeed, decisions made before there was a United States. In colonial times, the colony of Georgia, for example, had tried to ban the introduction of slavery there, but was overruled in London. Quakers in colonial Pennsylvania had tried to put a high tax on the importation of slaves into that state, but this too was overruled by the British government. The fact that 19th century public opinion in both Britain and America was very different from what it had been two centuries earlier did not mean that either country could simply wipe the slate clean and escape the consequences of what had already been done in earlier times. Some Americans, including Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, and Lincoln, sought a way out of the painful dilemma by sending freed slaves back to Africa. However, by the time this idea became widespread, most of the slaves in the United States had never seen Africa, and neither had their grandparents. They spoke no African languages and had no idea where their forebears had originated on a continent more than twice the size of Europe and one where local and tribal origins were, and still are, crucial to one's acceptance or even toleration by other Africans. One concrete result of the Back to Africa movement was the establishment of the colony of Liberia on the West African coast, to which freed American blacks were sent during the administration of James Monroe for whom they named their capital, Monrovia. 
these first settlers were decimated by African diseases to which they no longer had biological resistance, which was just one of the problems of trying to undo the past. More fundamentally, the numbers that could realistically be transported to Africa for resettlement was less than the natural increase of the black population of the United States. So this was a foredoomed hope. Nevertheless, the American Colonization Society and many others persisted in the hope that slavery could be ended as an institution without releasing into American society millions of former slaves by establishing colonies for them in Africa or Haiti. Even when private manumissions of individual slaves was legally possible, it was not wholly without its dilemmas. Modern historian David Bryan Davis denounced Congressman John Randolph for hypocrisy because Randolph publicly condemned the slave trade during a visit to England, while he himself continued to hold slaves in the United States. However, Randolph was not just speaking for public consumption in England. He said similar things both in public and in private letters to friends in the United States. Why, then, did Randolph not simply free his own slaves? This question reaches beyond one man and has implications for the whole set of contradictions which slavery presented in a free society. At a personal level, the answer was clearest. Randolph could not simply free his own slaves legally, since he had inherited a mortgaged estate and the slaves were part of that estate. Only after he had removed both financial and legal encumbrances was freeing his slaves possible and only after he had made some provision for their economic viability as free people did he consider it humane. During hard economic times, Randolph wrote to a friend of more than 200 mouths looking up to me for food, and though it would be easy to rid myself of the burden, morally, it would be more difficult to abandon them to the cruel fate to which our laws would consign them than to suffer with them. Thomas Jefferson likewise owned a plantation encumbered by debt, as did many other Southerners. So emancipation of all of Jefferson's slaves was never a real possibility, though he did manage to free nine of them. Like Burke and Randolph, Jefferson did not see slavery as an abstract issue. He saw the heavy moral stigma of slavery, but also the social dangers to flesh and blood people. He wrote in a letter, I can say with conscious truth that there is not a man on earth who would sacrifice more than I would to relieve us from this heavy reproach in any practicable way. The cession of that kind of property, for so it is misnamed, is a bagatelle, which would not cost me a second thought if in that way a general emancipation and expatriation could be effected. And gradually, and with due sacrifices, I think it might be. But as it is, we have the wolf by the ears, and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is in one scale, and self-preservation in the other. Many other slave owners, of course, saw their slaves as simply a source of wealth, and were therefore determined to hold on to them for that reason. However, even those slaveholders with aversions to slavery in principle were constrained by a strong tradition of stewardship, in which the family inheritance was not theirs to dispose of in their own lifetime, but to pass on to others as it had been passed on to them. George Washington was one of those who had inherited slaves and, dying childless, freed his slaves at his will, effective on the death of his wife. His will also provided that slaves too old or too beset with bodily infirmities to take care of themselves should be taken care of by his estate, and that the children were to be taught to read and write and trained for some useful occupation. 
His estate, in fact, continued to pay for the support of some freed slaves for decades after his death, in accordance with his will. The part of Washington's will dealing with slaves filled almost three pages, and the tone, as well as the length of it, showed his concerns. The Emancipation Clause stands out from the rest of Washington's will in the unique forcefulness of its language. Elsewhere in it, Washington used the standard legal expressions, I give and bequeath, it is my will and direction. In one instance, he politely wrote, by way of advice, I recommend to my executors. But the Emancipation Clause rings with the voice of command. It has the iron firmness of a field order. I do hereby expressly forbid the sale of any slave I may die possessed of, under any pretext whatsoever. Long before reaching this point in his personal life, George Washington had said of slavery as a national issue, There is not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted for the abolition of it. But like Burke, he saw a need for a plan of some sort, rather than simply freeing millions of slaves in a newly emerging nation surrounded by threatening powers, just as the freed slaves themselves would be surrounded by a hostile population. In short, the moral principle was easy, but figuring out how to apply it in practice was not. Moreover, in a country with an elected government, how the white population at large felt could not be ignored. When Washington congratulated Lafayette for the latter's purchase of a plantation where former slaves could live, he added, Would to God a like spirit would diffuse itself generally into the minds of the people of this country, but I despair of seeing it. He saw legislation as the only way to end slavery and said that a legislator who did that would get his vote. Slaves that Washington took north with him when he entered public life, he quietly left behind when he returned to Virginia after completing his terms as president. In effect, freeing them on the sly, as one biographer put it, at a time when to free them officially could have set off controversies that neither he nor the new nation needed. George Washington was, after all, trying to hold together a fragile coalition of states bearing little resemblance to the world power that the United States would become in later centuries. As a slave owner in Virginia, Washington thought of ways he might sublet much of his estate, in which his current slaves might be hired by the year as laborers by tenant farmers. He was clearly casting about for some way, as he put it in a letter, to liberate a certain species of property which I possess very repugnantly to my own feelings. But there were no takers. Washington's behavior as a slave owner is also worth noting. Beginning in the early 1770s, he rarely bought a slave, and he would not sell one unless the slave consented, which never happened. Not selling slaves was an economic loss. Slave labor on a plantation with soil as poor as Mount Vernon brought in little or nothing. The only profit a man in his position would make was by selling slaves to states where agriculture was more flourishing. Washington would not. I am principled against selling Negroes as you would do cattle at a market. From 1775 until his death, the slave population at Mount Vernon more than doubled. As southern states in the 19th century began to tighten restrictions on the right of slave owners to free their slaves, in order to forestall the social problems that were widely feared, the laws made manumission increasingly difficult, legally complicated, and a costly process. Those slave owners who were prepared to grant manumission found it less onerous to let those who were legally their slaves simply live as de facto free persons. 
In Antebellum Savannah, for example, two of the churches in the free black community there were headed by ministers who were among the most prosperous members of that community, even though they were, legally speaking, still slaves. Many blacks who had managed to gain freedom for themselves individually then legally owned members of their own families because it was not financially or otherwise feasible to go through what it would take to free them all de jure. Quakers also held legal titles to many slaves in their southern churches, while it was an open secret that these slaves lived free and independent lives. In the case of John Randolph, the charge of hypocrisy is hard to sustain in view of the events surrounding his death. Never married, and so without heirs to his estate, he made provision in his will, years before his death, that his slaves were to be not only freed, but provided with land in a free state on which they might hope to live in peace and be self-supporting. In a will written a dozen years before his death, Randolph wrote, I give and bequeath all my slaves their freedom, heartily regretting that I have ever been the owner of one. An earlier will said, I give my slaves their freedom to which my conscience tells me they are justly entitled. That this was said by a conservative white southerner, a bitter political opponent of the abolitionists, and a man who asserted the right of secession long before the Civil War, suggests something of the complexity of the issue confronting those who faced it directly as a human reality, rather than as an abstract question. Knowing the stringency of the laws of the South when it came to the freeing of slaves, when Randolph felt that he was dying, he summoned a doctor whom he wanted, ostensibly for medical treatment, but in fact, as a white witness whose testimony would be accepted in the Southern court as to his dying wishes. Once the doctor was present, Randolph ordered his black servant not to let the doctor leave the room until he, Randolph, was dead, so that there would be no legal question about what he had done. This was the scene. Randolph was propped up in the bed with pillows at his back. With his last remaining strength, eyes flashing, he pointed his long, bony index finger at the assembly. I confirm all the directions in my will respecting my slaves and direct them to be enforced, particularly in regard to a provision for their support. Raising his arm as high as he could, he brought it down with his hand open on Johnny's shoulder, especially for this man. He then asked whether each of the witnesses understood him. Immediately, Randolph's keen, penetrating gaze clouded. His mind gave way, and he slumped down. Randolph's will provided money to purchase land for his freed slaves in a free state in order to give them a chance to be self-supporting as free people. But even in the free state of Ohio, the opposition of local whites made it impossible for them to live on the land he had provided. The racial animosity that he had feared from the beginning would blight their chances was rampant even in the North. Whatever the merits or demerits of Randolph's personal or public policy conclusions, hypocrite hardly seemed the right word for him. Abstract moral decisions are much easier to make on paper or in a classroom in later centuries than in the midst of the dilemmas actually faced by those living in very different circumstances, including serious dangers. One way to understand the constraints of the times and their effects on public attitudes is to examine the difference between the way that many in 19th century America saw the slave trade as distinguished from the way that they saw slavery itself. If the institution of slavery and the presence of millions of slaves were facts of life within which many decision makers felt trapped by having inherited the consequences of decisions made by others in generations before them, 
The continuing trade in slaves, whether from Africa or within the United States, was a contemporary problem that was within their control. Thus, decades before slavery was abolished, the United States joined the outline of the international slave trade. Even many Americans not yet ready to support the abolition of slavery as an institution nevertheless made the bringing of more slaves from Africa a capital offense in the United States. One of the few individuals whose appeal to President Abraham Lincoln for clemency was denied was a ship's captain named Nathaniel Gordon, who was hanged in 1862 after having been caught bringing slaves out of Africa. His ship was bound for Cuba, but was intercepted on the high seas by a warship of the American Navy because of the international ban on slave trading, even though slavery itself was still perfectly legal at the time in Africa, in Cuba, and in the United States. Clearly, the evil nature of slavery was recognized by the severe penalties imposed in America on those who continued to bring slaves from Africa, though there was not yet a consensus on what to do about the millions of enslaved people already in the country. In the North, with all the hesitation in many matters, there existed unanimity in regard to the slave trade, according to W.E.B. Du Bois. Gordon's trial and execution were not even controversial and received little attention in the press. Even in the antebellum South, Virginia Congressman John Randolph again exemplified the cross-currents of the times in the dichotomy between the way that slave trading was seen and the way that slavery itself was seen. Although a fierce opponent of the abolitionists, Congressman Randolph was nevertheless adamant against slave trading, at home or abroad. Despite being a slave owner, Randolph did not engage in the practice of buying or selling slaves himself and denounced on the floor of the House of Representatives those hard-hearted masters who broke up black families by selling their members. Randolph urged the federal government to act in an area where it had legal jurisdiction to ban domestic slave trading in the District of Columbia. The fact that there was no such general support for making domestic slave trading a criminal offense as for making the international slave trade a capital offense reflected the fact that the former did not increase the total number of slaves in the United States, nor take any more people out of Africa. However, being a domestic slave trader was not without social stigma, even in the antebellum South. This moral distinction between slave trading and the continuation of slavery as an institution might be hard for some in later centuries to understand, because in the abstract, there is no moral difference. Only in the concrete circumstances faced by the people of the time was there a practical social difference. The civil war that grew out of tensions over slavery was the bloodiest war ever fought in the Western Hemisphere and cost more American lives than any other war in the country's history. Whether or not those fighting on either side thought of their battles as being over slavery, as distinguished from secession, without slavery there would have been no secession and no civil war. The states that first seceded were states where slaves were the highest percentage of the population. Contemporary words and deeds by the leaders of the Confederacy made unmistakably clear that slavery was at the heart of their secession and at the heart of the Constitution that they established for their own new government. In later times, as slavery became ever more repugnant to people throughout Western civilization and even beyond, apologists for the South would stress other factors. But the real question is what factor moved Southern leaders when the fateful decision was made to secede? And that was unashamedly, as a Civil War historian put it, slavery. 
As for the race war that so many have feared, the fact that it did not materialize after emancipation is hardly decisive evidence that the fear was unfounded. During the Civil War, blacks were freed only where Union troops were in occupation of Southern territory, and an army of occupation remained in the South for more than a decade after the Civil War. In the antebellum era, no one on either side of the issue of slavery and emancipation had anticipated that. Even so, the vigilante violence of the Ku Klux Klan and other white terrorists, even while under military occupation, suggests that the potential for a race war was quite real. Among the other examples of anachronistic moral principles being applied in our own times to earlier times have been the many complaints that the Constitution of the United States did not abolish slavery. This was never a viable option because the South would not have remained united with the North if there had been such a clause. The clause would have been an empty symbolic gesture, leaving millions still enslaved in the South, but jeopardizing the existence of a vulnerable new country by splitting it in half at the outset. Even had both North and South survived as independent nations, slaves in the South were highly unlikely to have been freed by 1863, when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Would a meaningless clause have been worth the price of condemning even more generations of blacks to slavery? Moral principles cannot be separated from their consequences in a given context. Those preoccupied today with the contemporary instrumental use of history have scored many talking points by referring to the Constitution's allowance of additional representation for the South in Congress by counting three-fifths of the slave population in determining the number of congressmen to which the southern states would be entitled. Like many political compromises, this one made no sense except as a means of obtaining agreement in a situation where a dangerous stalemate threatened. The talking point made today is that this political arrangement amounted to saying that a black man was only three-fifths as important as a white man. But would those who say this have preferred that the slave population have been counted as requiring the same representation in Congress as the free? What would have been the consequences? Or do consequences matter to those trying to score points? Since slaves had no voice whatsoever in the selection of Southern congressmen, counting the slave population at full strength would only have given white Southerners a stronger pro-slavery contingent in Congress. Scoring points today and being serious are two very different things. It should also be noted that the Constitution's distinction in counting people for representation in Congress was between slave and free, not black and white. Free blacks were counted the same as whites, and free blacks existed before the Constitution existed. Social Consequences in Different Societies The situation in the Islamic world was very different from that in the West. Despite the larger total numbers of slaves sent from Africa to the Islamic world over the centuries, the surviving African population in these countries was much less than the tens of millions in the Western Hemisphere. In addition to higher mortality rates of slaves en route to North African and Middle Eastern countries, the survival and reproduction rates of African slaves there were much less than in the United States. While slaves in the antebellum South lived in families, even though they lacked official legal sanction for their marriages, both marriage and casual sex among slaves were suppressed in the Islamic world, and among the relatively small numbers of children born to African slaves there, the mortality rate was so high that few lived to adulthood. The sex imbalance among African slaves, 
far more women than men in the Islamic countries, and the fact that eunuchs were common among the relatively few African men, likewise precluded a vast African slave population in the Muslim countries. Among the European galley slaves in North Africa, there was even less chance for them to reproduce, and the European women who were domestic servants or concubines were in no position to leave behind European offspring raised in the European culture. The children born to them, fathered by North African or Middle Eastern slave owners, were absorbed both biologically and culturally into the Islamic world. By the late 18th century, visitors were commenting on the lighter complexions of the inhabitants of Algiers. What the United States had, that the Islamic world did not have, was a self-sustaining and racially distinct population of major proportions within the larger society. Non-Western countries in general faced neither the social nor the moral dilemmas that confronted 19th century Americans. Moreover, the emancipation of slaves was not an issue faced by non-Western societies, but rather was something imposed on them by the West. Even European powers with substantial slave populations in their Western Hemisphere colonies faced no major domestic social consequences from the freeing of those slaves, however much that might have economic repercussions for their slaves were freed on the other side of the ocean. Both slavery and emancipation were peculiar in their consequences on American soil. It may be significant that the only other independent nation in the Western Hemisphere with a large slave population, Brazil, was the last Western nation to abolish the institution, a quarter of a century after the United States. The Legacy of Slavery Slavery has left many legacies, some economic, some social, some psychological, some political, and most detrimental. Economics Those who think of slavery in economic terms often assume that it is a means by which a society, or at least its non-slave population, becomes richer. Some have even claimed that the Industrial Revolution in Western civilization was based on the profits extracted from the exploitation of slaves. Rather than rehash a large and controversial literature on this issue, we may instead look at the economic condition of countries or regions that used vast numbers of slaves in the past. Both in Brazil and in the United States, the countries with the two largest slave populations in the Western Hemisphere, the end of slavery found the regions in which slaves had been concentrated poorer than other regions of these same countries. For the United States, a case could be made that this was due to the Civil War, which did so much damage to the South. But no such explanation would apply to Brazil, which fought no civil war over this issue. Moreover, even in the United States, the South lagged behind the North in many ways, even before the Civil War. Although slavery in Europe died out before it was abolished in the Western Hemisphere, as late as 1776, slavery had not yet died out all across the continent when Adam Smith wrote in The Wealth of Nations, that it still existed in some eastern regions. But even then, eastern Europe was much poorer than western Europe. The slavery of North Africa and the Middle East over the centuries took more slaves from sub-Saharan Africa than the Western Hemisphere did, in addition to large imports of slaves from eastern Europe and southern Europe to the Muslim countries of North Africa and the Middle East. But these remained largely poor countries until the discovery and extraction of their vast oil deposits. In many parts of the non-Western world, slaves were sources of domestic amenities and means of displaying wealth with an impressive retinue, rather than sources of wealth. Often, they were a drain on the wealth already possessed. 
According to a scholarly study of slavery in China, the slaves there did not generate any surplus, they consumed it. Another study concluded, the Middle East and the Arab world rarely used slaves for productive activities. Even though some slave owners, those whose slaves produced commercial crops or other saleable products, received wealth from the fruits of the unpaid labor of these slaves. That is very different from saying that the society as a whole, or even its non-slave population as a whole, ended up wealthier than it would have been in the absence of slavery. Not only in societies where slaves were more often consumers than producers of wealth, but even in societies where commercial slavery was predominant, this did not automatically translate into enduring wealth. Unlike a frugal capitalist class, such as created the Industrial Revolution, even commercial slave owners in the American antebellum South tended to spend lavishly, often ending up in debt or even losing their plantations to foreclosures by creditors. However, even if British slave owners had saved and invested all of their profits from slavery, it would have amounted to less than 2% of British domestic investment. In the United States, it is doubtful whether the profits of slavery would have covered the enormous costs of the Civil War, a war that was fought over the immediate issue of secession. But the reason for the secession was to safeguard slavery from the growing anti-slavery sentiment outside the South, symbolized by the election of Abraham Lincoln. Brazil, which had several times as many slaves as the United States, and perhaps consumed more slaves than any other nation in history, was nevertheless still a relatively undeveloped country when slavery ended there in 1888. And its subsequent economic development was largely the work of immigrants from Europe and Japan. In short, even though some individual slave owners grew rich and some family fortunes were founded on the exploitation of slaves, that is very different from saying that the whole society, or even its non-slave population as a whole, was more economically advanced than it would have been in the absence of slavery. What this means is that whether employed as domestic servants or producing crops or other goods, millions suffered exploitation and dehumanization for no higher purpose than the transient aggrandizement of slave owners. Social and Psychological Legacies of Slavery Just as enslaved peoples tend to be despised, so the work done by slaves tended to acquire social stigmas in countries around the world. In Java, for example, free people did not want to carry their own packages, since slaves carried packages. And therefore, free people without slaves would hire a slave for such chores. Similarly, in Egypt, work done by slaves was spurned by working-class people, even after slavery was over. Sometimes it was not just particular kinds of work, but hard work in general or work under the direction of a foreman or overseer that was stigmatized. Just as great conquerors like the Mongols or the Spaniards disdained commerce as beneath them, so ordinary people in slave societies disdained many kinds of work because it had been done by slaves. One consequence of this was that immigrants with a work ethic, such as Italian immigrants to Brazil and Argentina, who often entered such societies much poorer than the existing white populations of these countries, began at the bottom by working at many tasks that local whites disdained, and ultimately rose to a higher economic plane than the whites who had been born there. Whatever their initial disadvantages, the immigrants were not burdened with the native-born whites' aversions to work. Former slaves and the descendants of slaves likewise developed aversions to tasks performed under slavery. In the British West Indies, for example, 
blacks, after emancipation, left the plantations in such numbers that a whole new plantation workforce had to be imported from India to replace them. The economic costs of such attitudes, deriving from slavery and continuing for generations thereafter, cannot be quantified, but also cannot be dismissed as negligible. Where slaves and slave owners have been of visibly different races, then the racial animosities and distrust deriving from the era of slavery may also last for many generations after slavery itself is over, leading to economic and psychic costs to individuals as well as social costs to nations. Although the negative economic consequences of slavery, including consequences among generations born long after slavery itself was ended, cannot be quantified, the patterns of lasting economic lags in regions where slavery was widespread may nevertheless be suggestive. In the United States, and no doubt some other societies, one of the major psychological legacies of slavery has been a sense of shame and resentment among the black population, and a sense of guilt among the white population. The reiterated depiction of enslavement as a peculiarly black experience falsely makes this seem to be a uniquely shameful fate to which a particular race submitted, requiring for some of their descendants compensatory bombast from themselves and, if possible, compensatory benefits to be extracted from others. To whites, the false depiction of the history of slavery makes some feel uniquely guilty and responsible for the current misfortunes of blacks. Such attitudes, and the many cross-currents they generate, are hardly the framework for a rational discussion or resolution of today's social issues. The physical and psychic sufferings of slaves in the past are neither necessary nor sufficient to explain the economic and other differences between their present-day descendants and members of the general population. The economic and other disparities between Europeans and Africans living, respectively, in Europe and Africa are vastly greater than the disparities between the descendants of Europeans and Africans living in the United States. The latter have not lost, but gained economically from living in the United States. That these gains derive from the tragic fate of their ancestors does not make them any less gains, over and above where these descendants would be today if their ancestors had been left alone in peace in their homeland. This cannot morally justify the seizing of their ancestors, it simply affects the cause and effect question of the reasons for black-white disparities today. Often, the economic lags or social pathology of American blacks have been blamed on a legacy of slavery. Whether it is the dearth of marriages and families among contemporary blacks or their lower labor force participation than whites or their high crime rates, slavery has often been invoked as an explanation. Yet the fact is that in the late 19th century, when blacks were just one generation out of slavery, there was nothing like today's level of unwed births or failure to participate in the labor force. It has been from the 1960s onward that these social pathologies have escalated. Whatever the cause, it has risen long after slavery had ended. Two very different questions have been confused as regards the history of black families. One, why marriage rates differ between blacks and whites, and two, why marriage rates among blacks are much lower now than in the past. Official census data show that blacks had slightly higher marriage rates than whites for every census from 1890 to 1940, but far lower marriage rates than whites by 1960. On the black-white difference, 
Some have argued that the census data from the late 19th and early 20th centuries are misleading, that black unmarried women with children in that era called themselves widows to avoid the embarrassment of being unwed mothers, even though the mortality rate among black men was not enough to account for so many widows. Interestingly enough, those who argued this way offered no explanation for the high rate of marriage among black men during that same era since unmarried fathers were unlikely to have children living with them to require them to pretend to be married when they were not. As of 1940, for example, from 66 to 70% of non-white males in age brackets from 30 and up reported themselves in the census as married and living with a spouse. Adding those black males who were widowers, separated or divorced, more than three-quarters of black males had been married, despite being only the third generation after slavery. However one resolves the question of the black-white differences in rates of married and unwed motherhood, the more fundamental question as regards the legacy of slavery argument is why black marriage rates began a precipitous decline in 1960, nearly a century after the end of slavery. While the percentage of first births that were premarital has long differed as between blacks and whites, as it differed between antebellum white southerners and white northerners, and between other groups around the world in places where slavery cannot be invoked as an explanation. The sharp increase in premarital first births among blacks began in the 1960s. From 1930 to 1934, 31% of first births to black women were premarital, while from 1990 to 1994, 77% were. Moreover, whereas in 1930 to 1934, Premarital births plus the births of children conceived before marriage but born after marriage were together still a minority in all black births. By 1994, these two categories constituted 86% of all black births. That such a legacy of slavery would take nearly a century to appear strange credulity. Summary and Implications the history of slavery can be looked at from several perspectives or for several purposes. Whether slavery is examined morally, causally, or politically is a matter of individual choice. But once that choice is made, accuracy and consistency are crucial. Moral judgments must be made with the facts as they are or were and applied consistently, regardless of the race, nationality, or religion of either the enslavers or the enslaved. These facts include the social context and the constraints and consequences implied by that context. We cannot assume 21st century options or even present-day knowledge when judging decisions made in the 19th century. Nor can we assume that we have superior knowledge of the social realities of an earlier era that we never lived through compared to the first-hand knowledge of those who confronted those realities daily and inescapably. Moral questions about slavery have been, almost exclusively, Western moral questions. Non-Western societies had neither moral concerns about slavery, nor, in most cases, the power to decide on the continuance or extinction of the institution for themselves during the era of European imperialism, when slavery was suppressed over most of the world by the West. Not only has the West's crucial role in the destruction of slavery around the world gone largely unnoticed, Standards applied almost exclusively to the West have been used to condemn European and European offshoot societies for having once had slavery. 
Even those Western leaders who sought to end slavery are condemned by critics today for not having done it sooner or faster. The dangers and constraints of their times have too often been either ignored or brushed aside as mere excuses, as if elected leaders operating under constitutional law could simply decree whatever they thought was right. Even a sympathetic biography of George Washington, for example, said, He had helped to create a new world, but had allowed into it an infection that he feared would eventually destroy it. This statement is breathtaking in its assumptions. Washington did not allow slavery, which existed on American soil and around the world before he was born, nor did he have the option to decree its end. Even to have made slavery a public issue at the time would have accomplished nothing except to jeopardize the survival of a fragile coalition of newly independent states. Yet, this man, who contributed more than anyone else to the introduction of free republican government in the modern world, is widely seen as being under a moral cloud, as if he had chosen to introduce or abet slavery. Washington's actual behavior illustrated what Adam Smith had said decades earlier in his theory of moral sentiments, that a man prompted by humanity and benevolence, when he cannot establish the right, will not disdain to ameliorate the wrong. Abraham Lincoln, who took advantage of a military conflict to stretch his powers as commander-in-chief to the point of issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, has been downgraded in the post-1960s world for not having done it sooner, more sweepingly, with more fervent moral rhetoric, and with affirmations of the equality of the races thrown in. The serious legal and political risks that Lincoln took when he emancipated Southern slaves are ignored. There was no groundswell of public opinion, even in the North, for freeing slaves. On the contrary, in a war-weary nation, it was feared that the Emancipation Proclamation would stiffen Southern resistance and reduce the chances of an early negotiated settlement of a conflict that killed more Americans than any other war before or since. Lincoln himself was unsure what the net military effect of the proclamation would be. Yet, military necessity was the only rationale that had either a constitutional basis or a political chance of being accepted. Those in later times who judge only by words may be disappointed that Lincoln did not make a ringing moral case for emancipation. But seldom, if ever, do they ask whether they would have made the proclamation more likely or less likely to survive both constitutional and political challenges. Despite Lincoln's mastery of moral rhetoric, some consider his Gettysburg Address the finest speech in the English language. The Emancipation Proclamation was written in such dry and dull language that it has been likened to a bill of lading. But Lincoln understood that ringing rhetoric can be as counterproductive in some situations as it is inspiring in others. To have made the moral case for emancipation in the proclamation would have undermined its acceptance as a matter of military necessity. The earlier emancipation of slaves in the British Empire likewise invoked military necessity and avoided ringing humanitarian rhetoric in order to maximize the range of its political support. As a distinguished scholar aptly put it, we are so conditioned to expecting interest to masquerade as altruism that we may miss altruism when concealed beneath the cloak of interest. As it was, Lincoln was viciously attacked in the Democrats' press for issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. Nor was this simply a question of his own political career being in jeopardy. Lincoln warned Andrew Johnson to remember that it cannot be known who is next to occupy the position I now hold, nor what he will do. At this critical moment in the history of the nation, 
and of the fight against slavery. William Lloyd Garrison could indulge in ringing rhetoric without regard to the consequences, but Abraham Lincoln had the heavy responsibility of consequences squarely on his shoulders as he faced his countrymen and history. Lincoln had been elected to his first term by a plurality rather than a majority, and it was by no means certain that he would be re-elected, especially with the controversy over the Emancipation Proclamation swirling around him. Those who view slavery as an abstract moral issue are as disappointed with Lincoln today as William Lloyd Garrison was at the time. Garrison was dissatisfied with the language of the Emancipation Proclamation and with the fact that it did not decree the total abolition of slavery, rather than just its abolition in the southern states at war. He seemed oblivious to the huge legal and political risks that Lincoln was taking, as many in later times would be when they criticized the limits of his actions and words. But had Lincoln's real concerns extended no further than the military effects of the Emancipation Proclamation, it would be hard to explain his many and strenuous behind-the-scenes efforts to get slaveholding border states and the Congress of the United States to extend the ban on slavery to the whole country. Garrison's rhetoric may look better to a later generation, but the cold fact is that William Lloyd Garrison did not free a single slave, while Abraham Lincoln freed millions. Lack of awareness or concern for the context and constraints of the times is only part of the problem of those today assessing such historic figures as Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln, or the American nation as a whole. No small part of the distortion and confusion about the history of slavery comes from attempts at scoring points about the past or using the past to extract concessions or largesse in the present. Non-Western slaveholding countries, past and present, from whom no reparations or other concessions are even remotely to be expected, are passed over in silence by the most vocal critics of the West. Scholars have long known that slavery was a worldwide institution, going back thousands of years, though that has not led them to provide comparable coverage to slavery outside of Western civilization. One scholar whose study of slavery encompassed Islamic as well as Western countries observed, slavery has been a common feature of human history appearing in nearly every part of the world. Though his own study did not extend across the vast reaches of Asia or to the Polynesian islands, another scholar distinguished for his studies of the Atlantic slave trade declared, Slavery until recently was universal in two senses. Most settled societies incorporated the institution into their social structures, and few peoples in the world have not constituted a major source of slaves at one time or another. Despite such common knowledge among scholars, the version of the history of slavery more commonly depicted to the general public, as well as to students in our schools and colleges, is more along the lines of Roots or other similar productions. On the other end of the spectrum, one of the rationales for slavery used in both ancient times and in more recent centuries has been that consigning some people to perform the drudgery of the world freed others to pursue the higher things, education, invention, political leadership, the arts, etc., and thus advanced civilization as a whole. Plato and Socrates came out of a slaveholding society, as did many of the remarkable leaders who founded the American Republic. But correlation is not causation, and even the correlation is not as clear as some apologists for slavery have assumed. Although Brazil imported several times as many slaves as the United States, it would be difficult to find Brazilian equivalents of Plato or Socrates or other world leaders
advancements in the advancement of civilization in the arts or sciences. The remarkable number of early American leaders who came out of Virginia, including Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, had no counterparts in other southern states, which collectively had vastly larger numbers of slaves than those of Virginia. The South as a whole lagged far behind the North in producing leaders in the arts and sciences. Slavery has been too facile an explanation of both the positive and negative aspects of slaveholding societies. The idea that slavery was based on race or racism is yet another popular notion that will not stand up to a scrutiny of history, as we have already seen. Yet, beliefs about the innate ability of blacks in the United States by prominent American leaders of an earlier era have been invested with great moral implications by those seeking to score points. But beliefs are neither moral nor immoral. They may be accurate or inaccurate, founded or unfounded. But they acquire moral significance only when they are shaped to serve some ulterior purpose that is either moral or immoral. Belief in the innate equality of all people has been promoted in order to promote equal treatment of all people. And belief in innate inferiority has been promoted in order to justify discrimination against some people. But it is these goals which have moral significance. In the absence of such goals, the beliefs themselves are subject to the tests of evidence and logic, rather than the test of moral principles. Abraham Lincoln, for example, said of blacks that their abilities were no measure of their rights. Thomas Jefferson likewise said, Be assured that no person living wishes more sincerely than I do to see a complete refutation of the doubts I have myself entertained and expressed on the grade of understanding allotted to them by nature, and to find that in this respect they are on par with ourselves. My doubts were the result of personal observation on the limited sphere of my own state, where the opportunities for the development of their genius were not favorable, and those of exercising it still less so. I expressed them, therefore, with great hesitation. But whatever their degree of talent, it is no measure of their rights. Because Sir Isaac Newton was superior to others in understanding, he was not, therefore, lord of the person or property of others. That took the question of Jefferson's beliefs about the innate ability of blacks out of the realm of morality. Elsewhere, Jefferson pointed out how tentative any conclusion must be about the innate ability of blacks, given the lack of scientific precision possible on such questions. Although Jefferson has been criticized for having expressed doubts, what he called a suspicion only, about the innate ability of black people, his obvious pleasure at discovering the able work of Benjamin Banneker suggests that his beliefs were not the servant of some ulterior purpose. The vast majority of blacks that Thomas Jefferson saw were illiterate people whose development had been stunted by slavery. He never in his entire life saw a black American who had a college degree, because there were none. The first black men to receive a college degree in the United States did so two years after Jefferson's death, and the first black woman more than a quarter of a century after that. As Jefferson himself realized, his observed sample of black people was inherently biased by time and place, which is an empirical deficiency of his circumstances, rather than a moral choice of his own. Others, however, used their belief that blacks were innately lacking in ability to justify, for example, forbidding the teaching of blacks. Frederick Law Olmsted's response to the claim that blacks were no more capable of being educated than animals were 
was to ask why there were no laws forbidding animals from being educated. The very need for such a law undermined the belief that was used to justify that law. Again, the moral significance of a belief derives from the purpose to which it is put. Otherwise, there is only a question of assessing the logic and evidence behind the belief. While facts about slavery are essential, we need more than facts. Indeed, one of the principal uses of facts is to gain some sense of causation, some explanation of why history unfolded as it did. In the case of slavery, it has been too readily assumed that resistance to emancipation in 19th century America was based simply on the economic interests of those who owned slaves, when in fact, abolitionists were hated even in states that had outlawed slavery, and emancipation was feared even by white Southerners who owned no slaves, who were a majority of white Southerners. When slavery is viewed in worldwide perspective, still more common beliefs crumble when confronted with the facts of history. The truth should need no apology, but the truth about the history of slavery is urgently needed for reasons that go beyond historical accuracy. Both the present and the future are at stake when we look at the past. What lessons we draw from that past depend on whether it is viewed narrowly or against the broader background of world history. From a narrow perspective, the lesson that some draw from the history of slavery automatically conceived of as the enslavement of blacks by whites, is that white people were, or are, uniquely evil. Against the broader background of world history, however, a very different lesson might be that no people of any color can be trusted with unbridled power over any other people, for such power has been grossly abused by whatever race, class, or political authority has held that power, whether under ancient despotism or modern totalitarianism as well as under serfdom, slavery, or other forms of oppression. It was not because people thought slavery was right that it persisted for thousands of years. It persisted, largely, because people did not think about the rightness or wrongness of it at all. In very hierarchical societies, where most people were born into their predetermined niches in the social complex, Slaves were simply at the bottom of a long continuum of varying levels of subordination based on birth. Even in colonial America, white indentured servants were a major part of the population, and they were auctioned off just like black slaves. It was the rise of modern free societies and their accompanying ideologies in the West, which made slavery stand out in stark contrast. And it was the emergence of a general questioning of institutions and beliefs in the 18th century, also in the West, that brought slavery into question. Once that happened, slavery could not stand up under moral scrutiny. Outside the West, it did not have to, at least not until after the spread of Western ideas of individual freedom belatedly took hold in some other societies. That such an institution could last so long unchallenged on every inhabited continent is a chilling example of what can happen when people simply do not think. Poverty is the norm, wealth the exception. With us today, a man who has written a book to remind us of that fact. Dr. Thomas.